Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today, we're talking with Jeremy Baum of Touche Amore and First Ever Podcast. We talked about the Nationals' 2010 album, High Violet, and never being too late to discover a new band. I also have to apologize to all of my friends who told me to check out the National for many years. I didn't listen, and I'm sorry. Well, anywho, Touche Amore released their most recent album, Lament, last year on Epitaph Records. They're headed out on the road later this month with Thrice and Self-Defense Family, so go check them out on tour. Also, please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Check out our new weekly Patreon exclusive with my co-host Sarah Blumenthal. We're doing short exclusive episodes every week where we dive into albums we liked when we were younger. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Please tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spinningoutpod. Okay, so honored to speak with Jeremy, so you know. Let's do that right now. So, Jeremy, this is the, I think, the official first time we've talked, but another time that we met for a second was in the record store Lunchbox Records. And I think I believe I said something awkward like, hey, I believe we're label mates, sort of. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't know if you recall that. And I think that was really I the end of that, that exchange. And it was like, hi, bye. Okay. Yeah, I do. I do recall that. Yeah, yeah that was uh, that was in uh, was that probably 2019, 2018? When was that? Who knows time anymore? time anymore but yeah but i do i I do remember that yeah because i also had a great time shopping at that store i think that was my first time at that shop but it's not unusual for me to like do sound check and then run off and try to you know investigate what other shops are within the area and um yeah i had a great time i i I remember a few things that i even bought that day so mm. that's how that's how that's how better of a time I had there than a lot of other record shops on that tour. Yeah. So, Do you yeah. remember? You said you remember what you bought that day. Yeah. Yeah. One of them at least. Okay. Which 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 uh, which of course now is is really not worth much. Which is um, you guys had a like a bootleg press of Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar, which you guys which I was like. Hey, like I have uh when they repressed it for Hot Topic, I have one of those and it's like the worst quality ever, but it goes for like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Probably not now, but it went for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And then so when I saw that you guys had like the bootleg version of it, I was like, oh, I could actually just like listen to this and not, you know, wear out the the one that's worth money. Um, but yeah, I remember being like, kind of like taken back by it because I was like, I didn't know this was reissued. And then I, then I like investigated, I was like, oh, it's just a bootleg. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that stuck out to me cause I remember just being like, whoa, I didn't know this existed kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess, well, we are actually today, we aren't talking about Marilyn Manson or bootleg records. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> uh, we are talking about the Nationals 2010 album, High Violet. 
and that came out on 4 AD and they produced it themselves just kind of getting some of the wiki facts out of the way it was their fifth album and to start off I'll be honest I think this was the first national record that I've ever really sat down and listened to um, <laughs> and I think this isn't like I know that this is like an important band to you. I've heard you like speak about it in other kind of forums, maybe on your podcast and other things. Um, so when was the first time you ever listened to The National? Uh, it was the record before this one called Boxer. And Jeff Rickley of the band Thursday happened to send it to me. Um, like it was just like, hey, have you checked out this record yet? Um, I think he just kind of knew because I have such like a deep connection and an affinity for anything sort of within the vein of like a Leonard Cohen or something like that. And he knew how he knows how important, like just basically lyrics are to me. Um, so he was like, have you listened to this record boxer? And um, I just pretty, pretty quickly fell in love with it. And it was at a great time because it was pretty shortly after that, that high violet came out. And there's always that something special when you already are like into a band and then you're present for when the next one is coming, you know, because because at that point you start to feel like, OK, now I'm going to have my own personal new connection to an album as opposed to being introduced to one. Like I'm going to be at the forefront of when this album comes out. And um, at that time, I was seeing somebody who lived in Brooklyn and I think just sort of like this culmination of my love for New York new york city and, and brooklyn and all of that and then like that band being a very brooklyn based band even though they're originally from ohio but like all of these sorts of things like singing about new york like all this sort of stuff was like just hitting me at all the right time and uh yeah they had put out the music video for blood buzz ohio which just like was just it was just for me like everything about it like was just this is everything i want in a band like lyrically sonically it just it hit me at all the right time. Yeah. So did you when let's say I guess when Jeff Rickley uh, sent it to you and I'm kind of more so projecting myself onto this. Did it like take you any instance to like get into it or were, or do you feel like because it was from Jeff, like you kind of trusted their judgment? Uh, once again, I like I mentioned, I said I'm projecting yeah. a lot of myself onto this. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think it's both. I mean, um, I feel like he he has such an eclectic an eclectic music taste that um, we have so many parallels on things that we both really like. Um, so I think him knowing what I what type of stuff I enjoy, like he knows that I'm a Joy Division fan and then a Leonard Cohen fan, as I mentioned, and and stuff like that. And like I enjoy Interpol and stuff, you know. So it's just like, oh, this is this is all very him. And he, I think he even approached it to me being like. Hey, are you a fan of this record? And I was like, I haven't listened to that record. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Well, you have to listen to this record. Okay. And then again, it was like all at the right time because it was um, just a little bit before, um, yeah, before High Violet came out. Yeah, I feel like I've had this weird thing. I bring it up like every episode of this podcast where I feel like I'm kind of playing catch up with uh, stuff from this era because I had some sort of aversion to it that was like you know, like too professorial in a way that, you know, kind of like turned me off. But then also mm -hmm. when I finally listen to these bands, I'm like, I mean, it's 
you know, it is like high minded in some way, but it's not like hard to sink your teeth into. Like it's not right. it's not akin to like kind of showing up at a random art space and then someone's banging on a glockenspiel. You know, it's not like then that's <laughs> yeah. always my aversion. It was like some. It's not challenging. Yeah, it's like I always yeah. think of some kid in a sweater and then there's some adjunct professor. And, you know, they're just screaming into, like, children's toys. You know, it's what right. I almost thought, like, indie rock was for a time frame. Um, and so so I just, like, had some aversion. So when, it, when I think about things like Interpol, it's like I had these moments where I was like, Interpol's good? And then I was like, the National's good? And that was up till this moment, you know, when, when yeah. I was listening to the record. And I'm like, what? Like, why did I, you know, I know you'll have no way to answer that, but it's like, why did it take me so long to just like, it's like, I just give it a yeah, chance. Just like people would be like, check out boxer. And I'd be like, nope, nope. And just kind of run away from it. Like I don't, cause I've had so many friends being like, I think you would like the national. And I put it on and for some re reason it didn't catch me. But I, a lot of the experiment of doing this podcast is kind of like trying to appreciate something for like what, it is without kind of like coming at it with a preconceived notion. Uh, totally. You know, so. And do you still work at that record store? Uh, I never really worked at that record store, but what ends up happening is a lot of people think I do because I'm often there and also I'm like friends with the owner. So I end up like working like record holidays, uh, like record store days okay. and stuff. So I've, I've worked yeah. there before and I book shows at Lunchbox Records, but never been an official... <laughs> A employee there um you know what i was gonna say was was like working at a record store you sort of also get exposed to things that maybe you wouldn't have listened to on your own you know what i'm saying like i worked at a record store for for a long time uh right out of high school and i'm so thankful for that experience because there's so many things that i would have never stumbled upon otherwise so doing a podcast not unlike that sort of situation it's like if this is the theme of your podcast, then certainly you're going to be forced to uh, to check out some things that you normally wouldn't have. And, you know, I've been on record saying that the best thing about music is that you're never too late. You know what I'm saying? Unless it's something like the person you get into is passed away or the band is broken up. But also at the same time, we know in this in this day and age, no band really ever fully breaks up because they're depending depending on when and where the, there's a chance they're going to play. But um, but yeah, I mean, like. Look, over the pandemic, I finally was like, I guess I'm going to listen to the Rolling Stones. Okay. Like, I just yeah. I just started to appreciate the Rolling Stones. And, you know, that's like something that I, I myself had an aversion to all my life where I was just like, shitty logo. <laughs> like, like, no, like, it just doesn't speak to me in any capacity. But then you I listened, you know, I watched um how I how it hit me was I watched Gimme Danger, the the documentary. And it, all the songs that they're playing in it, I was like, wait a minute, I like all of these yeah. songs. <laughs> like, do I like the Rolling Stones? And then now, you know, I've been chipping away. I mean, they have too many records and there's a lot of records that people have told me to just, you know, don't waste my time with. But the ones that I are like classics, you know, Sticky Fingers and, and things like that, I'm like, I'm all about. And now I've been really enjoying. It's been like a big thing that I've been listening to, you know? Um, and like, so what I'm getting at is it's never too late, you know, even though, even if you weren't present for, for when maybe all that stuff was really bubbling up, like, you know, high violet to me is a classic record. I have, I, I think they have like three or four records that are like 
certified classics, you know, that, it, that I can interchange is like my favorite record from them, you know, but I, at my heart, I feel like high violet is the one. Um, but you know, hit me on a day and I'll be like, eh, trouble will find me pretty might be my favorite. Yeah. You know, it's tough to say. Yeah. Um, I guess in terms of Rolling Stones, I think if you stick to their seventies era, um, Mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to get into. Um, I, it's, it's been harder for me to get into like the kind of Brian Jones era. Um, I feel like Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just like the recording thing. I mean, I like it now, but it's like getting into it. It was the harder sell for me. Um, but that seventies era is like a easy place. And I think some of their best uh, records live in that time. Sure. Um, so if you're still kind of digging, uh, but yeah, yeah, that is kind of a funny thing. It's like you can kind of do that with any band too. What I've what I've done in the past few years is kind of go, is this band bad? Let me see if I can find ten good songs by this band. And I did that with Aerosmith because I always felt like I used them as like a punchline. It was just like, you know, uh, but I ended up it was like more than ten songs, and I was like. I guess I'm an Aerosmith fan now. Like I never thought I'd be here, but you know that can kind of happen with their early. Things. Yeah, their early records are great. Sweet, I mean, the song "Sweet Emotion" is like yeah, that's a that's a banger. Yeah, that's I think I was like, they have like two good songs, is what I thought, and then I was really like, their first two records are undeniable, and then they have kind of decrease. It diminishes at that point, but yeah. it's still like there's enough throughout their career, and then. There's kind of a return in sort of a nostalgic way, at least for me, like, you know, some of the things that I think I remember hearing as a kid, you know? I mean, the 90s, yeah, the 90s, 90s era with like crazy yeah. and, and, and all those songs. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I could probably live without Dude Looks Like a Lady. That one's some of, that, some of that. Yeah. That's a terrible song. Um, but, but, or like Love in an Elevator. Song sucks. Like, I don't know if I'm, yeah, not, not into that era, but like, yeah, uh, Crying, that's a song a too, song. right? Yeah. And then, uh, and of course, the Armageddon soundtrack song. Oh, that's great. That's uh, a banger. Yeah. 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 Uh, that, so, yeah, give me the earliest and then give me the 90s and you can have the rest. I think that's my. Yeah, I think that's a fact. That's. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so, I guess, like, if you, let's say, if you were working in a record store and I asked you, like, what does the national sound like? What outside of Leonard Cohen, like what would you use for maybe contemporaries or how would you explain them to me? Uh, is that band Tinder Sticks that that uh that they sort of sound like? Um, or I'd be like, hey, do you do you are you a fan of um Nick Cave? Okay, you know, I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, if you like Nick Cave and you like Tinder Sticks and you enjoyed maybe the first Interpol record, um all of these things kind of come together and could, could pique your interest, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, it's Nick cave, but like easy, easy to digest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can see it's not challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of aspects I'm thinking about like the one specific, like Nick cave at Austin city limits where Mm -hmm. like he's, you know, kind of dancing around like Jack Skellington. Um, and yeah, like it's, yeah, I think that's like an apt description with it. I never really like thought of the connections, but I guess I wouldn't have not liking uh, yeah. the national. One of the I'm such a sucker for uh, references, references and songs. Uh-huh. You know, like when someone sings about a, a song, like when someone sings about an artist in a song or, or something like that. And the national has has historically done that. And um, 
on one of the last releases, there's a song called Not in Kansas, which is in a top five favorite national songs. And um, he mentions listening to R.E.M. in it. And I went back at it was around it was it was that song hit me at the right time because at that point I was listening to a lot of early REM like Murmur and and those records, um, but it made me think like oh I've never really dove into their like later nineties early two thousands era like I, I I think the last I think the last record of theirs that I that I listened to as a kid was Monster, and they have an album uh, I believe it's the one right after that called New Adventures in Hi Fi. And the first track on that record I I put on and it was like, oh my God, this is literally like the national, mm. like I, this, this sounds like the national to me completely. Um, so it was just like one of those things where I was like, oh, like because of this reference now, I've just discovered like a new record from REM that I never gave a chance to. And now I'm haunted because that record on vinyl goes for like hundreds of dollars and it hasn't been repressed, which I'm just like, Ugh. yeah. But is Monster the REM record that has like what's the frequency Kenneth on it? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. I feel like I recently got into that record and was like, because I think I had like an earlier cutoff for them. Like I was like, I don't yeah. like anything past this era because I think that's past the one before that is automatic. For and the that people, has which is like flawless. Well, that has the Every, end of the world as you hurts. know it, right? No, no, no. That's Document. Document is like an earlier record. Document which is, is a good record out of time. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. For some reason, I always like, think, like, I think End of the World is, like, a later song in my head, and then I'm, like, nothing after that point. But then it's all, that's not, none of that's correct. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah, because after, after after that record comes Out of Time, which had Losing My Religion, which is, like, maybe that and Everybody Hurts are probably their most known songs. Yeah. Um, But uh, Out of Time also has um, Shiny Happy People, that song with the B-52s. Um, but, but yeah, I, allow me to ruin what's the frequency Kenneth for you. Something that drives me fucking crazy. It is the most baby hitting drums you've ever heard in your entire life. Listen to it. Thinking about the drums, like that song comes in, it's got a kick-ass, like good riff. And you're like, here we go. Here we go. And then when the song comes in, it's like, what's the frequency Kenneth? Like, it's yeah. just like, like it could not be hitting the drums any softer and i'm like oh my god i don't think please, i ever like, paid attention to it because that that guitar is so prominent i feel like that almost like so takes the rhythm and the vocal and the vocals and the melody come in and they're just as like powerful but the drums man i swear to god if they if they just i wish there was a re-recording or i want to hear a live recording where maybe the drummer's actually like hitting with some like emotion yeah <laughs> it just it drives me crazy it, uh, there was a movie called um under the silver lake uh -huh. which came out yeah, a couple I've years ago that uh that that movie made me come back to that song because they used that song in the movie at a pretty pivotal scene and it made me be like holy fuck i i that's a great song holy shit and then so i like and it was around the time that they were reissuing monster okay. as like a remastered record yeah so i was like oh this is perfect this is all kind of coming out at the same time so i bought it put it on my turntable and so when i got that yeah i just all i can hear is just how soft the drummer's hitting and it drives me absolutely mm. up the wall now i'm realizing <laughs> that i'm very prone to like marketing in that sort of way because i'm like Oh, I'm pretty sure I revisited that record after watching Under the Silver Lake. So it's like yeah. it's like it's like uh commercials being stuck in your head and then you buy like 
pop tarts or something you know it's like it feels like that i'm like oh that was totally after i watched the movie that i got sometimes, into sometimes yeah some i you know i i think a dream job for me is being a music supervisor uh-huh. i'm like a you know for like movies and tv and stuff i actually had a i had a, i sat down with someone who does that for a living and they kind of talked me out of it they to, to explain how how monotonous of a job it actually is um but uh but i feel like if you're a, a, just like a kick-ass music supervisor you have the ability to do what that person who was the sur- supervisor for that movie did for us which was make us go damn that rem song rips yeah you know with that i mean i know we've barely talked about the national yet but when i think about the in terms of music supervisors now like mainly i guess what i'm wondering is i feel like there's not like soundtrack albums like in the way that they're used to but there Mm -hmm. are such big needle drops in movies like under silver like or really anything you know uh but i wonder like what happened to soundtracks like as a commodity i guess licensing i'm sure i'm sure we're just that i mean what i i genuinely think the answer is without actually having it mm-hmm. is artists are actually being paid for their art now oh. well, arguably, well arguably you know depending arguably, on the avenue depending on the the, the structure yeah. but like you know in the 90s okay for example did you ever watch the show the state on mtv it was a sketch comedy show so that show was it was on mtv or like early 90s and had some like you know they just got to go they got to have free reign with the music that was in their skits so like you know some some like memorable skits used like in excesses don't change or um the breeders cannonball blah 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 so that it took forever for those for that sketch show to like come out on dvd and then when it did it was like it's almost hard to watch as a fan of the show because they weren't able to use any of the original music Mm. because at that point all of a sudden artists got represented the way they should have been and they have to now get paid for the usage of all their songs so you know you get kind of this like mm, like shell of itself version of the show when you watch it because you're like oh it's like they tried to they basically tried to mimic the original songs and like make other versions of it that weren't the original it was like it's like really distracting um so yeah it's like yeah in the 90s we got like the crow soundtrack which had like so many great great bands and and you're like you know escape from la soundtrack or like mm-hmm. any of that stuff like judgment where, like, night so many stuff. judgment night, like granted those i guess you know what those soundtracks i feel like those a lot of those songs were written for the soundtrack purpose but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just, I still think in general, like the soundtracks that would use big known famous songs are just behind us because, you know, you have to really pay for it. You know, that becomes a big part of your budget. Whereas like Quentin Tarantino, I feel like a lot of his movies are probably budgeted for the soundtrack where mm-hmm. it's like, well, we're going to have to spend at least 5 million on <laughs> getting, getting, you know, all of these songs that are going to be in once upon a time yeah. or you know any of these sorts of things so yeah. yeah it's 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 interesting i think sometimes in those they probably just budget it for that but i know there's been certain stories where it's like they'll give it to them for a steal which is probably still in the millions as uh, because they know like what platform that kind of gives like let's say the kinks or something you know it's like yeah. they wouldn't normally license a song but it's quinn tarantino so they do add a fraction of the price because the rewards are higher and higher you know, hi- hypothetically 
you know so yeah. so yeah i it's it's just something that's kind of goes through my head um i also i mean at this point we i feel like with soundtracks like as a kid i didn't care about the score but now as an adult i love scores you know like like horror soundtracks are are such a hot commodity because of the fact that it's like a you know john carpenter kind of made this vibe that everyone's trying to emulate and imitate for the last bunch of years so like horror soundtracks are awesome to listen to the score wise but like as a kid i was always like nah man i want the songs like, yeah it's you know yeah it's true like uh, i don't know there's like so many 90s horror movies that have like harvey danger and stuff in it um you know like uh, any I, I can't think of what i'm thinking of yeah. like I mean, there were so many new metal, like, that like new metal, new metal and horror soundtracks of like the late nineties were like, <laughs> it just became one, you know, it's like the, oh God, what was that movie? Uh, uh, the one with Aaliyah. Uh, oh, Queen of the Damned. Queen of the Damned, which had like Deftones and like, I think it had like Static X and like yeah. all these sorts of bands on it, but it was like Godsmack. It was like very of that era. Yeah. You know? I think like Cradle to the Grave has like an Aaliyah song in it um or it was one of them has that first if you don't succeed song and i remember it like i think that was queen of the damn because i remember like the music videos that would tie into it and i feel like i don't necessarily i can't think of it being used that heavily after i think spider-man 3 um because i remember like dashboard confessional vindicated unless that was spider-man 2 one of them it might have been i think it might have been too yeah but it was like after that point i can't recall in the same way like mm-hmm. it's it feels like there was some sort of cutoff uh with it but also potentially with kind of software developing to kind of like find those things might be part mm-hmm. of it but we don't really know the answer to that <laughs> we don't but it's a whole that's a whole podcast in its in and of itself yeah um i think like going back to the national one of the things that i thought up until today is i imagined for no real reason that they were like the most self-serious people based on when, even when I was getting into the record, it's like pretty serious lyrics that seem very literary. But then I saw, uh, there was, there was like a video of them, how they live in the basement at, uh, Colbert studios, uh, was mm-hmm. a video and they're funny guys. And it, it actually like opens a band up more when I feel like they're not like, don't take themselves too serious, you know? Yeah, yeah. They, they have an incredible sense of humor yeah. for sure. Like, uh, I mean, one of the music videos off of the record that followed, uh, I think it's for the song Graceless, is them at one of their parents' house, just literally just like running around and like jumping in the pool, just being like really destructive. You could tell it was the most fun music video to make where it's just like, oh, we're just going to get really drunk and just act like assholes. And that's the music video. And it's like so charming. You know, it's like, uh, and for this record, um, the song conversation 16, yeah. the, the music video for that has like comedians in it yeah. and like known comedians, like, uh, one of the actresses from, uh, like flight of the Concords is in it, you know? Um, yeah, it seems like they, they, for as serious as their music is, um, you know, they, they know how to not come off like, you know, arrogant guys that you would never have a conversation with. yeah even in that music video specifically because i I watched it today as well um they're in the video but they play like such minor roles like a secret service agent is what Uh matt plays um so it's like actually like very kind of aware of yourself too that you're like Mm -hmm. 
I want to be in this video, but I know I'm not going to be able to play the John Slattery role, the guy from the Mad Men that's on in it. And uh, but he's just kind of like there beside him the whole time, you know. Totally. Yeah. And it, what's and see, so what's great is like they they're able to do that, but at the same time, they I don't know if you if you if you read about or saw the performance they did uh, called like a lot of sorrow. Mm. Do you know about this? No. So the second track on the record is called Sorrow. And um, in New York, uh, it was, uh, I guess it was May 5th. I'm just looking it up right now. It's like May 5th, 2013. Um, they played the song Sorrow for, I think it was like ten, I, uh, 10 hours straight. No, six hours straight. They played it for six hours straight, one after another. And they put out a box set of that it's nine LPs and it's just the same song over and over and over and over and over. And they did it at the, uh, the MoMA in, uh, in New York city. And it's like, like had they not shown any sign of having a, uh, a sense of humor. And then you just read, Oh, they did this art, this art, uh, piece where they just played the song for six hours straight. You'd be like, okay, this band might be a little up their own ass, but, but you, you see all these sides of them and you're like, that's sick. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I wish I could have witnessed that, you know? Um, and the box set is crazy. It's uh, it looks nuts. I'll, I can show it to you when we're done, but like, and also I'm the asshole that's like, yeah, I'm going to buy that. <laughs> so you have it. Oh, you said you I have it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah. have it. Yeah. Have I listened to it? That's another question. Yeah. So when <laughs> they're doing that, I know I could just easily go and watch it after this. So they just kind of play it the normal length of the song and just start it back over again? Basically, yeah. But I mean, like, as time goes on, you know, like, it starts, you, you, I think the point of the art installation is that, like, you feel how the song transforms once you're forced to play it for six hours straight. Yeah. You know, there's going to be points where, like, someone has to probably run to the bathroom yeah. and, like, maybe there's, there's missing an instrument that time or, you know, all these different iterations, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It, like, it, it made for an actual interesting, you know art installation yeah that also sounds like another idea for a podcast where you kind of like break down an hour of each um you know and kind of like figure <laughs> right. out like who leaves the stage you know like yeah. a watch along kind of thing for the whole thing yeah um i yeah. don't know if i'll listen to it but it does sound like an interesting thing that should exist totally. in some way uh, yeah but yeah i i think it's like also never realized i knew that they were a big thing and it's like hard to kind of ignored especially with like the taylor swift albums that came out like last year and them being a part of it but i never realized that they were as big of a band as they are you know and i still don't like understand like i don't know the full scope of how big this band is and i don't know how that like passed me you know well it's interesting because they are what you would consider like a extremely successful band without any radio play True. You know, yeah. I, th I think they're like a prime example of like a band that can be extremely successful with no radio MTV help. You know, it's like it's social media. And then also, um, you know, they really became darlings of TV, you know, like they get they got to do they've done Colbert a billion times. They've done, you know, the, they've got to play SNL like they they've really uh been taken under the wing of like you know credible tv people you know whatever whatever it is so like 
I don't know. I think they're a great example of like how big a popular, uh, how, how massive and popular a band can be without actual, you know, uh, conventional airwave support. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Do you, I, I assume you've seen them live probably numerous times. A lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what size venues do they tend to play? Uh, massive i mean like they put like here in la they played uh i've seen them at the hollywood bowl okay um i've seen them at but then i've seen them at like you know the the greek they they put out a movie um like a documentary which is a brilliant documentary that i can't recommend enough it's like very it's also charming and funny because it's it's about the his relationship with the singer's relationship with his brother so he he hires his brother to make this documentary and his brother's like you know kind of you feel bad saying it but he's like he's seemingly like a fuck up yeah and and it's like it's it's a very charming movie because it's like matt is clearly trying to motivate his brother to do this thing but he gets in his own way a lot and and it's it's it it, it's one of those things but um they did a performance here in la where they showed the movie and then they performed after like it was it was really really cool it was very like LA star studded where like Ed Helms was in the row behind me. And it was like a very, it was like a very LA night, but very incredible. You know, it was like a seated, you know, everyone in the place was seated. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was, they, they can get away with doing stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Cause I think like when I, even though I wasn't completely sure, like they were that big, but it's like, I can't almost can't imagine them like opening for someone. They're like so much mm-hmm. their own orbit. You know, and there's yeah. not that many bands that get to do that, but you know, it's like they're just their own thing. Yeah. You know? Right, and it'd be one of those things where it's like you. Th- I think of bands that they could potentially, that like they would quote unquote open for, but it's like they would probably sell half more than half the tickets to just their audience themselves if they were to do that. Like, if them opening for let's bring up REM, like, is REM bigger? in the public eye public eye yeah but like they probably sell the same amount of tickets yeah you know so it's, it's interesting i don't know or it's like it wouldn't make sense if they open for the foo fighters you know it's <laughs> like why why would why would that happen yeah. <laughs> you know so you know it's it's tough to say also you know you get into the situation of like would rem or the foo fighters need the national to open for them it's like you're gonna pay them like almost half the you know probably half the budget of whatever you're gonna make so you could probably sell just as many tickets having you know a band that can draw 50 people you know yeah it's gonna it's not gonna hurt your ticket sales yeah do you feel like in the same way once again shifted into rem and not the national but i think i never thought of the similarities in a way with them like they're kind of other than i feel like rem were able to kind of live in a time that had more like mtv and uh opportunities that i don't think were really probably even available to the national or really had to i think they were able to flourish in different ways but the similarities i never really thought about um so do you think that in the same way that people like the smiths do you feel like rem has been able to kind of be passed down to another generation as well I don't know that there's young people listening to REM. You know what I'm saying? I think for for the generation um, older than me, so I'm 38. So I think people that are probably in their early 40s that were in college at the time were probably would probably look at to REM to be like that. You know, 
like in the very mid 90s era i bet especially those early records like okay for example my band recorded two records with a guy named brad wood Mm -hmm. he Um, comes up a lot on this podcast oh okay so brad wood massive rem fan massive rem fan and that's like exactly who that would be for you know he's in his like i think he might be he might be 50 now but like he was he was like there seeing them as those albums were coming out Uh you know like he that was his favorite band when murmur came out yeah you know um he has some very funny stories about him dealing with rem in like charming capacities um but yeah it's like that's that's who i think the generation is for um i'm not really sure who those bands are these days i I think that we live in such a you know disposable kind of time with music that i I don't know if and when we're really gonna have those anymore unless people are willing to do the research which i'm kind of finding out they're not yeah you know i think like and kind of where it shifts back to the national it's just that one thing I think potentially hurt REM, and I don't know this as a fact, it's almost like bands that stick around too long. And I think that can be subjective and not always like true because like you're saying, you've checked out later REM records and you feel, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, they're potentially as good as some of the other air. Uh, you know, but <laughs> uh, maybe not. <laughs> but okay, so the let me try and rethink. I get, what you, I get what you're saying. Yeah, though. but like sometimes I, I bands kind of stay around too long, or that's the thought. And so it's like the Smiths, I guess, are able to kind of skate off of the fact that they went. It's just away. a different. Yeah, yeah, it's just like a different time. I mean, I mean, but look at the Cure. The Cure is the Cure is can still put out a record sure. and it'll probably do okay. But uh, that's where you fall into the world of like what a legacy band is. You know, like legacy band is like a tough, a tough position to be put in because. You go to see a band, okay, let's bring up a band like Korn. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, Korn has continued to put out albums every other year. But, like, I don't know how many of those fans are pumping their fists, hoping they play track six off their newest record when they go to see them. Yeah. You know, they're going to see them wanting to hear songs off their first four records. Yeah. You know? And what's frustrating is, I think, when bands i don't know if corn is one of them i wouldn't have any way of knowing like um a lot of times the assumption is that the band's new material isn't as good as the classic material but then i wonder it's like a lot of these bands potentially are doing some of their best work i mean the -hmm. national maybe is the example uh but people just want the early stuff i mean that's just like a human condition kind of thing that we'll never be able to diagnose right yeah. And what's great about what I think makes the Nationals so lucky is that I think their first two records are never talked about. And I, as a massive fan, never throw on like the self-titled record. And they have a record called Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers. Um, my band even covered a track off of Sad Songs on a on a comp for a comp a long time ago. Um and we only chose one of those songs because I was like, oh, this sounds like this. We could do this song and not butcher the shit out of it because it's like a, it's like kind of bored. It's kind of aggressive um, and isn't, you know, there's not a, like electronic elements brought into it. It just it's like a guitar rock band. Um, and it wasn't until the record Alligator that they started to become actually known and, and popular outside of probably Brooklyn, you know. 
Um, so it was like alligators, their third record box and they start to get popular boxer hits. They start really getting momentum. High violet comes out. It's like for a band to, to literally blow up on their sixth record is awesome and gives, gives me a lot of hope, you know, like in the same way that to bring it back to Leonard Cohen, like something that always motivates me and makes me not feel bad about my age is like, Leonard Cohen didn't put out his first solo record until he was in his thirties. You know? Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So it's like, you know, it's, it's just one of those reminders that it's like, it's never too late for you to put out a record or or start a band, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. What's kind of, when you think about, I guess I don't even know if I want to say that the national or like indie rock and that kind of easy way, but I guess we would call them indie rock. But sometimes I I feel like, like indie rock doesn't often allow people to get older as gracefully. Like, but I, I feel like there are a lot of heavy bands, you know, I guess like actual metal bands. It's like kind of cool that these people are in their 40s, or at least that's my perception as like getting older. But I feel like it's sometimes like if you're past 30 and you're in indie rock and not crazy successful, established. then it's embarrassing in a way. It, it, I think it all depends, you know. Um, also, I just need to correct myself. High Violet is their fifth record, not their sixth record. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I was, I said that. I was like, I need to still need to fifth myself. record, but still to blo- to literally become big on your fifth record, yeah, is very special. Yeah, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, to your point, I mean, it, I could probably think of other bands that have older members but that that probably didn't take off until a little later but it's interesting to think about you know to it to equate it to like actors you know i feel like most actors don't start winning their oscars until they're in their 50s which is crazy you know or like become really respected until they're in their 40s um and those are the people that we still consider like actual movie stars you know it's like i listen to a lot of movie podcasts and like that a lot of the conversations are like, we don't really have like movie stars in this generation. When we think of movie star, we think of George Clooney, we think of Brad Pitt, we think of Leonardo DiCaprio, we think of, you know, these types of people, but like the Denzels of the world, but like everyone else is like famous because they're in Marvel movies Yeah, and that's great. And they're sick. And I love a lot of those actors. I think they're awesome. But like, you know, you can't really imagine them doing a lot of like we can't I can't imagine Chris Evans doing like a really dramatic noir movie and having it work, mm-hmm. you know, whereas like, yeah, I don't know. I'm going on a, on a tangent yeah. here, but like but it's just it's it's interesting to think about age and how it how it works with different people in their eras and, and their professions, you know? Yeah. And I'm trying to think because, I mean, everyone in the national, they weren't like even when I feel like they started being known outside of New York, like they weren't young, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I think the thing I read about the singer, um, Matt, uh, so what, like he's quit a like advertising job to kind of like pursue the national. Uh, I think at that point he was like, he said he was in his thirties, uh, yeah. you know? And so that's, but that's yeah that's not the norm per se and like, it's kind of da- yeah. i mean it's it's uh, in american culture it's very dangerous to say i'm going to quit my well-paying job to do my rock band yeah yeah you know i've seen it it's, a lot and it never works out well 
No, <laughs> it, it really doesn't. You know, you always feel like you need to have. That's an unfortunate part of of American culture. Also, is that you always feel you're always pressured to have a backup plan. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you want to do your band, but you probably should get that college degree. Yeah. You know, just because you have it as a backup. You know, it's like that's an unfortunate thing, and I and I hate it to be honest with you. Like, you know, I. Uh, I myself, like I never went to college and I've never really gave up wanting to play music. And like to my detriment, you know, here I am, I'm like 38 living at a time where music is basically toast. Um, and you know, it's like a scary thing that I, that I dwell on, but I have to remember that it's just like, I chose to, you know, I feel like once you, (laughs) once you've done this long enough, you kind of, you know how to hustle, you have a built in hustle ability where it's like okay well you know i need to somehow pay my rent so like what am i going to do to figure this out you know and i think that there's a drive that that is born with some people to be like i don't give a fuck like i i'll eat you know i'll eat top ramen if i have to but um you know i i know that i want to do music so i'm going to keep doing that and whatever so like i i credit matt for doing that i mean that's like a really bold move to be like i'm gonna just pursue the music thing 100 percent. you know yeah. he tells a really he tells a really awesome story on a podcast uh he did with uh i think he interviewed amy mann and and uh says that that they they sent their demo or whatever their newest thing was at the time uh to matador and matador like hand wrote them a letter back saying you will never be on matador like which is incredible because now they're on they've been on 4ad which is beggar's banquet which is literally the same umbrella as matador and i just love like you know in their back of their mind they're just like (laughs) yeah (laughs) like like we have crushed it on this you know like you missed out on quite an opportunity yeah you know they're like the most Um, successful like spite band ever oh yeah 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 that's funny that imagining matador doing that because that feels like something reserved for like fat records like fat records had to like like, hand write yeah like they had the filled in thing and then he would just kind of like write little notes like it was essentially a rejection letter and he would just like write his name and be like put in the band's name and then it's like no you know yep yeah it's very 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 funny um (laughs) But yeah, so like in a lot of ways, you know, the, the National are kind of this beacon of hope, I think, you know, it's like it's a reminder that like you can still make great music no matter what age you're at. Um, and, you know, you can still tour and and be interesting and do creative things and, and you know, have your own vision for what you want to do. And um, yeah, I think I think I got the first notion that that was the vibe with them when I saw the video for blood buzz, Ohio, cause I was like, Oh my God, like this is, he's Matt Berninger is like the epitome of cool in that video. Like he's everything that I've ever wanted to be as like, <laughs> just like a fucking dude. Or I was like, he's, he's handsome. He's got a rugged beard. He's, he's like, he's got some swagger to him. Like everything about him is like, he's just, he's exactly what uh, a lot of us want to be as like, you know musician guy yeah like the baritone voice even like it's all that but yeah yeah, and it's like a it's like a type of guy but it's not like it has to put on too much of the guy you know it doesn't even get into like 
even a Nick Cave kind of territory where I feel like there's a lot else you got to load that up with, you know? Uh, so, but it's totally, yeah, new guy. As like, also as like such a lyricist guy and someone who cares so much about, about lyrics and are the number one most important thing to me. Um, I'm always fascinated when, depending on the genre, how you can get away with certain lyrics. So like, being in a band that I yell, there are lyrics that like, if I wrote down, I'd be like, there is no way I can sing that. Like, there's no way to make that sound good or real in the type of music that I play. But there are lyrics that Matt Berninger has written down and performed that I'm like, I lo- like it, it works. I don't know how it works, but for instance, there's a, there's a song where they, he, the opening line is, Standing at the punch table, swallowing punch. You rhymed punch with punch and uh, like that's by all accounts, a terrible lyric, but you hear it in the song and you're like, Oh, it's so good. Like it's, it's so good. Or, uh, you know, he talks about his dick like more than once, you know, it's like, uh, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine getting away with that in any other genre, but somehow he makes it work because he also often follows whatever line that might be questionable was something that just like digs deep and is like unbelievable. So he's, he's got some great wordplay. I also love that he co-writes his lyrics with his wife. I think that's really interesting. She's basically like plays his editor as far as I can tell, where he'll like write a song and then bring it to her and then she'll clean it up, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's like a really cool dynamic that I've never really heard of before. Have you ever, have they ever expressed like what that process is? Like, is there like a why or kind of like what the end product ends up being because he does it that way? I don't know. Maybe, I, it might just be trust, oh, you know, okay. it might just be having this outside opinion of someone who knows him obviously through and through and just being like knowing his potential maybe yeah. also is, is a part of it. Yeah. I, I feel like it's <laughs> the only way I can understand it and this isn't with lyrics it's like if i were to write like a uh let's say a mad email for work yeah and then i'm like before i send this i'll give it to my wife and be like can you read this over maybe i'm being like too ridiculous like you know so but i try and think about it in a literary sense and be like is this truly what i mean or what am i trying to say uh yeah you know because in the same fashion like i've had lyrics and then i feel like my wife tells me what the lyric is and i never realized it you know and so potentially that's you know also the relationship there almost like telling yeah you what the song that you wrote is actually about which is more of a problem right. i have than probably you or matt has yeah totally <laughs> yeah yeah so but how do you feel directly like how do you feel like the national influences the way you write lyrics and if it does um yeah no it totally does uh, the, the, He's, he's been one of my, you know, biggest, biggest inspirations. Um, whenever it comes time for me to have to write a record, there's like three or four kind of records or writers that I, that I go to and I'm like, all right, you know, what do you got for me? And it's, I've been lucky to where the national seems to put out a record or Matt, something that he's doing, he seems to put out a record, whether it's a solo thing or another band around the time that I have to start writing. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> it's like now I have something new to sort of like dive into. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the carefree nature that he has 
um, in certain aspects. Like I mentioned, writing lyrics that I would often be like, I don't know if I could pull that off. Um, but then also having very, okay, saying a lot without saying so much without saying a lot is something that I think he has, has really, really mastered. Um, and, uh, I, I wish I had an example off the top of my head. No. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think even just looking at like your lyrics, I would, that's like, would be my reference more for it. Like, I feel like there are points where you do that, where I feel like I know the emotion without you having to spell it all out, you know, which mm. like from having like an English degree, the easy way to use that. And I wish I had a better example was like, like Hemingway, you feel like there's things that like Hemingway say says between the lines without saying like the full thing, you know? So it's like, you can look at it for a second and know that like Hills, like white elephants is about like abortion in another country when at around the time that, you weren't really outwardly allowed to talk about that. Um, so, right. you know, those kind of things where uh, it's like, if you kind of think about it or it's almost sometimes what I do personally too, uh, is I, I like to like make it universal and, uh, but it, so that, that way someone can look at it and then kind of extrapolate their own situation into it. And I think I've had times where listening to Touche Amore where it's like, it's so specific that it becomes universal in a way. Right. That's, that's something that I learned along the way is that there's times where you write something that feels too on the inside, that feels too hyper-specific to your specific situation. And those are the moments that connect to people the most. The more specific you get, the more zeroed in, um, the more universal it actually becomes, which is, which is really fascinating. Um, I, I thought of an example actually. Okay. Um, so on the song to bring back to blood buzz, Ohio, uh, the chorus is, um, I still owe money to the money to the money. I owe. I never thought about love when I thought about home, I still owe money to the money to the money. I owe the floors are falling out of the floors are falling down from everybody. I know. Um, like the general sense of like the floors are falling down from everybody I know is it's, it's, it's so universal. And I remember I just, this record came out around the time that we were going to record our second record, parting the sea. So I was listening to this record, like nonstop, like non nonstop. And there is a song on the record of our record called crutch, which took, took definite um, uh, influence from this where, I was having a hard time. I had writer's block and the, the verse kind of flew out of me, but the opening, the opening verses, uh, you said, I'm always on the go. How nice of you to notice a toast to all those broken homes. Everyone I know is a fortress. So like that, that, you know, that everyone I know, I know crept in there yeah. where it was like, you know, this, the idea of just kind of everybody together in this situation, like, I don't know. Uh, I, th that was the first example I thought of, of, of like how his, how just one part of a song can be like, can open me up to being like, well, now I want to express something semi-similar um, with my own sort of take on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think even, I guess even with Touche Amore, I spoke with Norman Brannon on the podcast about a Touche, oh, nice. Amore, Touche Amore record. And he said, um, and it was like, he knew that he had never had a situation like you had uh, with, you know, your mother passing away, yeah. unfortunately. 
but it's sort of like reminded him of other aspects of his life, like being estranged from his family as a whole. Uh, and so it's like, it's wasn't at all close to what his experience was, but the emotion of your experience made him ruminate on, uh, you know, his own, you know? And so that's just sure. kind of hammer the point home about yeah, that kind of yeah, yeah. thing, you know? I, you know, I, I've also, you know, I've been on record really saying that like, um, my favorite thing about my all time favorite, favorite thing about music is that once you put something out, it's no longer yours. So like it is now up to the listener to decide what that song is about. And I'm often, I, I, one of the things I fucking hate, which often is like a regular thing now, which is, Hey, to promote the record, can you do a track by track breakdown of what every song is about? Because people are pretty creatively bankrupt and don't have any other ideas. I'm always just like, okay, like, I guess if this helps, I'll do it. I hate it. Cause I don't want to give it away. I want, I want people to have their own interpretations of it. And there has been so many times where someone will approach me after the show and tell me, express something to me that about the song that, you know, Oh, this song helped me with a certain situation. And they'll tell me the situation and never in my wildest ever dreams would I be like, that's not what the song is about. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, Oh, you got that all wrong. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, uh, an example I've often gave is like this first song off that record stage four. Um, in the chorus, I'm talking about, you know, me having these arguments with my mother about um, her refusing to eat and how I regret having those arguments because I wasn't sympathetic to the fact that like she just doesn't have an appetite. It's like the thought of food is making her sick. But me as like a caring person concerned for my mother's health. I'm thinking if you don't eat, you're going to die quicker. You know, like that's where my brain is going. So, you know, in the course I say, uh, you know, when you refuse to eat, blah, blah, blah. So I meet somebody after a show who tells me this song helped me with my eating disorder. Never would have expected that, you know, like that song, you know, about the eating disorder. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad I'm so glad to hear that helped you. That's wonderful, you know. But it's like it was crazy to me to be like, wow, that's what you took from that. That's wild, you know. Um, and an example I give a lot is like for me personally, the amount of songs in my life that I put on mixtapes for people that I had crushes on that I thought were these sweet love songs that were actually like songs about God. Yeah, yeah. You know, or it's <laughs> I have like that. three three kind of points that I go through what you just said. So the first one is like thinking about journalistic things that people will go on, and even thinking about the fact that uh, like Lament for you all came out last year, and then uh -huh. uh, Stage Four came out in 2016. If I were a journalist, the question would be. Like, uh, what, why four year? why was there a four year gap in records? Like, I fucking hate that question. Like, it's uh -huh. like, it's like after when I, well, I'll say as we come out of the yeah. pandemic, whenever, <laughs> uh, yeah. I hope that no one ever asks that question again, as if we haven't all lived through this, like collective, ugh, I'm just going to make a noise Yeah, that there's no reason to ask people that question. Like people have lived their lives and tried to survive. Um, so that, that's kind of just personally, cause yeah. you mentioned that, that kind of those lazy journalistic things. Um, yeah. another thing too, is just like, uh, when I was doing the podcast with Norman, um, one of actually my grandmother had passed away, like right around that time frame, So it was very shortly after. Um, and it was 
very unexpected. And my grandmother's passing was not anything like what your experience was, but I felt connected to it, you know? Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is thank you, but also it's just also kind of thinking about that too, that it can kind of stick with you with the emotion, but it's not my situation at all. Uh, and then, yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll get to my yeah. third thing, but yeah, please. <laughs> but the, the, you, when you mentioned like putting a song on a mixtape, um, yeah. So when the most recent like Drew Thompson uh, Foundation record came out, there was like a song I was listening to a bunch. Like it just came up, and uh, me and my wife share uh, shared a Spotify account, at, uh, and she was kind of like, "I don't understand like why you're listening to this specific song so much. Like, do you know what this song is about?" And I'm like, "No," you know, and it's like about a relationship ending, and I'm like, "I didn't even pick up on that," you know. Like, but it's like, it's just, I was like, I just thought it was a good hook. Like, I feel like in my brain, a lot of times it's like a hook first and like the lyrics, but yes, if the lyrics are bad, then I, you know, I'll get around to it, but that's not my first (laughs) inclination. Uh, So just kind of thinking about not really realizing or creating a different relationship with the song that isn't there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, uh, do you you remember the band? Are you familiar with the band? They're still together. Uh, The Smoking Popes. Yeah. So the singer uh, had a band post Smoking Pubs before they got back together called Duval, which was basically just a worship band. Oh, yeah. And to me, I mean, shit sounds like Smoking Popes. I didn't give a shit. You know, to me, I was like, oh, it just sounds like the Smoking Popes to me. I like these songs. And uh, yeah, there's there's a couple songs on there that are like straight up like I love you songs, but are like I need you, I love you type songs that I was like, yeah, this is this shit rocks. This is going right on the mixtape that are like, oh, these are these songs are praise songs. Oops. Yeah, like Juliana <laughs> Theory has that a lot. Oh, where yeah. it's a love song, but it's probably you know, their their relationship I think was a little bit divorced, but I think it's like it's kinda hard to get that out of your DNA. I think if it had already supplanted itself, like it's it's almost impossible for me to like separate myself from like worship music having some sort of influence on me so it's like it's just there you know yeah 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 yeah. no totally yeah um yeah before you know i i have to mention on high violet uh the song lemon world Mm -hmm. it's like top top three from from me my dog's name is lemon okay it's uh it is it is such a it's one of my favorite songs and i'm still mad because i've never seen them play it live mm. never and and i look at their set list and I'll, and you know like as the tour is coming and i'm like oh my god they've been playing it they've been playing it and then they get to la don't play it wow. it's killing me it's killing me i feel like that's um, one of my favorite songs on the record yeah but it's unbelievable and i've heard matt say that he doesn't like it and i'm like god Damn it. I wonder if it's because of the kind of do, 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 do thing he has to do in it, if that kind of like feels weird. Like if you're not, I don't know. If you're not in it, you almost feel like you're kind of wearing it, you know? And yeah. Um, cause it is, it cause anytime, like even like promise ring doing those, you know, that kind of thing a lot. Um, feels monotonous maybe. Yeah. But I think it's like, but it works, you know, it like works for yeah. promise ring. It works for lemon world. So it's like, I, I couldn't imagine anything that you would change it to. You know, like <laughs> for me, there's like there's a lot of reasons I love it. But like for me, I just love the very like imaginative, very storytelling, very like you can picture everything like the way we, you know, when you hit me up about the podcast and I and I mentioned maybe doing the weaker than's like John K. Sampson has the ability to paint 
a picture in your head of every lyric that he sang. You yeah. can follow along. It feels like you're watching a movie in your head when you're listening to a John K. Samson song. And similar to Lemon World, when he says, like, lay me on the table, put flowers in my mouth, and we can say that we invented a uh, love and torture party. Uh, like, it's one of the craziest lyrics that you're like, holy shit. And then, you know, you, you, it just, it sticks with you, you know? Um, it's, yeah, I, I love that song with, with all my heart. Um, and all, they put out the expanded version of the record, um, sometime later. And it just, you know, it's one of those things where like all the B sides on this, on this record, you're like, why is this a B side? Like all these could have like, are just as good as the other tracks, which, which always I think speaks volumes, you know? Like the song "You Were a Kindness" has just devastating, devastating song. Yeah, I, I I've been failing at my own experiment, but every every episode I do a thing where I'm like, if you were to cut a song from this hmm. record, what would you cut? And I cut I couldn't yeah. figure it out for this one. So um, it seems like it would be easy, but then when I the last time I re-listened, like I was like, I'm just I can't. <laughs> like with the yeah. the eleven tracks that it is, I would almost say it's like vander lyle crybaby geeks but that has like one of the best like kind of like indians to a song and if you and if you've ever seen if you ever see them live they often close the show the same way where they turn off uh they turn off the mics they turn off the monitors and they come out and they just play that song like with literally just like acoustic stage uh-huh. volume and the entire place sings it with them it's like so moving and so beautiful mm-hmm. it's just like it's so as much as uh, I always enjoyed that song on the record, but like getting to see it live in that, in that way so many times now, it's like, it's so, so special. Um, I don't know if there's a song that I would <sighs> mate. Honestly, I love the opening track, terrible love, but I've also heard, you know, it's like a thing like, uh, like Nirvana's Nevermind. Yeah. I could live the rest of my life without ever hearing smells like teen spirit again. Yeah. I always skip it. You know, you know, yeah. I, with me with never mind i start on side b you know what i'm saying like like give me give me side b those songs all rip and i haven't heard them you know it's half as many times as i've heard fucking come as you are lithium smells like teen spirit you know it's like yeah it's it's i've heard them enough yeah it's like an inner sandman kind of thing it's like you don't need to hear inner sandman don't need to hear it so i love i think terrible love is an incredible song but i've 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 heard it a lot you know so maybe that might be the one i would cut um but uh it'd be tough it's like uh getting rid of kids you know (laughs) so it's a perfect record yeah um i guess what what always feel bad like as i'm like slowly kind of wrapping things up it's like always feel like i never mention like other band members in in as like a bass player in a band like I'm like mm-hmm. I feel like responsible that I must you know but I don't <laughs> like I feel like a lot of the show ends up being Matt or Aaron you know yeah and it's there you know they have an interesting dynamic you have two twins in the band mm-hmm. and then the drummer and the bass player yeah. are also related and I think the underrated member of this band is the drummer yeah some of the craziest craziest drum beats you've ever heard in your entire life like to play this style of music and to be that outrageously creative is such a feat, you know, like he does so much with what he's presented with, you know, like there are beats that are make no sense, you know, like whenever they put out a record, I'll I'll always play, I always remember certain songs and I'll play them for my drummer and I'll be like, 
listen to this shit. And he's like, I don't even understand what that beat is, but it's sick, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of times I feel like, uh, or at least with this record, like it's it almost gives him license to do that because it's not like it could exist without him, but it's like it changes the role he has with the music because I don't feel like he always has to care. He carries it. I don't know. It's like a weird thing with him. It's like it's the rhythm's there, and then so he's able to kind of like dance around it. You know, it almost feels yeah. like, for lack of a better word, and a thing I'm about to hate saying, it feels like jazz, you know, in a way that it's like, it's like you kind of learn how to go around it because, like, the notes are always going to be there, you know, like, once you kind of mm-hmm. set it in motion. But watching, like, any of the kind of live stuff and watching any of the, I guess, comedic things, Scott, or, oh, sorry, it's Brian. Uh, Brian, he stands out as, like, almost like a character in the way that someone in the band is like like when you watch like any like the band live uh things like they all just seem like different versions of muppets you know mm-hmm. and he he kind of lives up in that way to me you know yeah <laughs> yeah this man has an ability to, to do things that are very unexpected always too musically like um there's a song on the record that follows uh called i need my girl which is like one of their most popular songs and uh if you watch a performance of it the one of the guitar players i forget which one um just carries around a guitar and just slams it on the ground like just hits the hits the headstock on the ground to just make this like yeah like it's like through a pedal just like it reverbs and it just sounds like this thing and it's like it's awesome you know it's like that's your role in the song you just get to hit a guitar on the ground and it makes this insane sound um but it's those things it's like you see them do it or you watch them do it and you're just like damn it this band is cool (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's weird to also think musically where it's like i feel like someone could leave the equation if they had to and the song still exists and i i really have Mm -hmm. no great way of explaining that but it's like the way they write music i guess it's like an ethereal kind of thing that like sometimes people playing shoegaze think they're doing but it feels like it's actually being done way better this way like i mm-hmm. yeah it's a strange thing to kind of like think of like they could take out like one of the guitar players and then it still feels like it could be the same song it's like i don't know how to explain it you know yeah maybe yeah yeah um it's it's really fascinating like they're all just so talented like uh you know whether whether they're playing piano like one of the brothers are playing piano or whatever it's like you know there's always so many people on stage and like so many instruments going and whatever it's just it's such an experience and and uh i really don't think there's any other band quite quite like them um yeah i always get so so excited whenever they they have something coming um i got to punish matt for like okay I, i i give myself whenever i meet somebody that i admire i have a countdown clock in my head of how much time i'm gonna bother them and it's 10 seconds. And if they push the conversation, if they ask me a question or if they respond, I add five more seconds to the clock. Um, you know, it's like, it's like a, it's just cause I, I don't want to yeah. be annoying. Um, but it was after one of the shows they played at the Greek and, uh, he was very drunk. The whole band was very drunk. Uh, cause they drink a lot of wine on stage. And, uh, I just got to go up and say like, I have a funny picture. My my uh, my fiance took a photo. Uh, took a photo of me talking to Matt, and you could just see in my face. I'm like, <sighs> yeah. but uh, I basically was just like, hey, I don't want to bother you, and I'm so sorry. That was an incredible performance. I just need to tell you that like, 
you're an, an incredible influence and um i really admire what you do so thank you for that you know kind of a thing and he was he was like oh hey, of course of course thank you no but no problem you know just like a very kind of sweet and deflecting of the situation being like oh yeah i appreciate it thank you so much and then he took a photo with me which was really nice but i was just so excited and so nervous to just like purge all of that in like the time frame that i allowed in my head you yeah. know um but it was it was a, a very exciting and very nerve-wracking moment for me but i was excited i got to at least say something to the guy because i admire him so much you know yeah i think like to kind of sort of correct myself on the the kind of the way they write songs it feels like it could exist in different formats and it still like feel like that song like you could imagine like i feel like matt could play it on guitar and sing it and i would still recognize it as that song and that's mm. you know people say that a lot about songwriting like you should be able to play it in any sort of way and it still exists and i don't i don't always agree i usually don't agree with that but i it's it is a situation where i think that this could happen you know for them like they could switch well, instruments in a way <laughs> yeah well because also you know the vocal melodies are so powerful mm -hmm. <clears throat> that that if they were done a cappella, yeah. as soon as it started to be like oh i know that song yeah. i know what song this is yeah and that's you know wild yeah and back to yeah. what you're saying like nothing sounds like them you know like when i'm kind of listening to something for the first time it's like what were their cues like what are they kind of pulling it from and even like rem was an interesting thing but i don't it's like it's really its own thing which sounds like just like a lazy way i can put it but it's like that's a hard thing to do just kind of be singularly your own thing you know totally and yeah I I I I uh I suggest that listeners check out the first song off of New Adventures in Hi-Fi. The song is called How the West Was Won and Where It Got Us. That to me when I listened to that, I was like I was like holy shit, I can see the the national influence like or the 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 Matt influence for this one, you know? It's always cool when you hear maybe a specific song that makes you be like, "Oh, I could see where they put like I would have never thought that, but I hear it." in this you know yeah and i, I know um so as i kind of let you go um you touche more i put out a record last year lament in 2020 and uh, i want to kind of ask the bad journalistic questions of like what are your You're plans fine. but i know you yeah. have the upcoming thrice tour and i guess fingers crossed yeah. with everything in the world um big crossed yeah um yeah but i guess like where can people where can people find you outside of touche more well, I do a podcast, uh, the most, you know, the most like, Hey, the world shut down. Here's, yeah. here's something I can do Same. To, to still garner attention. <laughs> um, yeah, I do a podcast called the first ever podcast. Uh, new episodes go up every week. Um, celebrating my 50th episode this week, which is exciting. Um, and I do a band called hesitation wounds, mm -hmm. but we like hardly are a band. Um, especially now that uh we're as far apart as i mean we've always been very far apart but now like our bass player who was in arizona just moved to new york city so now it's like okay we have our drummer in portland our bass player in new york city and me and the guitar player here in la um but uh yeah i don't know if we'll do anything with that anytime soon it'd be fun too um but uh touche yeah i mean we just put it up we just put up a cover of the strokes uh we covered uh hard to, uh hard to explain which is really fun um we also did a cover of uh guided by voices the song game of pricks we covered that with barry from joyce manor okay uh singing on it um which is fun and 
yeah i don't know we're just we're, we did we, we recorded a lot of covers just to kind of like keep busy and like kind of not feel like we have to write songs because you know we have a lot of friends that put out records in 2020 that are already writing their next record and and as much as i think it's good to be proactive you know i need to i've been saying like i need to experience this record live and kind of live in it for a while before i'm ready to like think about fully being like let's go write the next record you know yeah i'm i'm okay to start getting some skeletons together and starting to like jam on stuff. Like I'm all about that. But like the idea of saying we got to start writing a new record is like still pretty far away from me. So I'm excited to finally get the ability to hopefully play these songs live and feel them out. And, you know, a a big part of the thing that uh, like a big talking point lately in my life has been the idea that like records live in, in a site in four different life forms mm-hmm. where it's like, I talk about this with Pat Flynn actually, where it's like, you know, I think a record first exists when you're writing it and then it exists when you're recording it. Then it exists when you release it. And then it exists when you perform it, you know, all, all four of those different circumstances are a totally new life, you know? And, uh, and it's nice to have to, to, to it'll be nice to know what that life form feels like when it's a more of a community life where I, I see how it re- reflects in other people, you know? Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully all things go well and we get to play. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. I, I love talking about other people's music. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, I'm like, yeah, I always feel like I'm like, I didn't talk about the record long enough, but I feel like that's sometimes the best way to talk about a record. Yeah, I mean, if I okay, how about this? If I was to be like, "Yo, you never listened to High Violet before? Here you go." Uh, I recommend listening, starting with Blood Buzz Ohio, which I talked about a lot in this podcast, which is interesting because I, I bring it up a lot because it was the entry point for a lot of people because it was the first single. Mm-hmm. Um, Lemon World, Conversation Sixteen, which is my fiance's favorite song and one of my favorite songs for sure. Um, and uh, if I was to add one more, uh, I would do Afraid of Everyone there you go well yeah thank you no problem this is a joy i appreciate i uh, i appreciate you uh asking me to come on well i appreciate you coming on welcome back thanks again to jeremy for coming on the pod check out his podcast first ever podcast and of course the new touche amore record Catch them on tour with Thrice at the end of September and all throughout October. Okay, next week, it's a big one. It's our 50th episode. Never thought I'd get to this point, so to celebrate, I'll be chatting with my partner, Sarah Blumenthal. We're going to talk about Lucera's first two albums. It's a band that means a lot to both of us from the very beginning of our relationship and to this day. On top of that, you can listen to me and Sarah. We're doing exclusive chats on a weekly basis on our Patreon. So we dive into just short conversations about music we loved when we were younger. We kind of revisit it. It's a lot of fun. So subscribe at Patreon, patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. So you can check those out now. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you do that kind of thing with podcasts. And thanks, as always, to Sarah for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week for the 50th episodes. We did it.